Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Food for Thought, a podcast gab fest in which a multiracial mix of queer writers gather around the table to talk about sex, identity, culture, what we like to read, and who we like to read. This is Joe O, the science ho, and once again, we're doing something a little different. This week, we are bringing you another live show from the Joe O, the science ho book tour, but this time, we have new readings new guests, incredible guests. We have Kristen Arnett and Kayla Kumari Upaja, and they both read their fucking lesbian ass shit, and it's awesome. And then we just talk about being queer ass writers. So I hope you stick around and enjoy the episode, and I will let the live show take it from here. I am going to do a short reading um, of a story called Italian Dressing. <laughs> I know we have some Italian exes in the room. <laughs> if I'm being honest, Layla said, I think the whole lesbians thing, friends with exes thing is bullshit. Bad for the community. Who even wants that? She was not being honest. She and her date, a tall, long-haired butch wearing confusing board shorts even though it was nearly October and the beach was a train, a ferry, and a bus away, sat on sweaty stools at the gay bar where Layla brought all of her first dates. Well, I think it's kind of like heteronormative to think exes can never be friends, board shorts said, (laughs) and Layla resisted the urge to roll her eyes. She also reminded herself that board shorts had a name, Jess, but she claimed her friends called her J-Team. Layla found white people to be overwhelmingly bad at nicknames. (laughs) Jess had set a new dyke record for how early she brought up exes, and Layla was briefly torn between changing the subject and leaning into it. She decided to press. Like, are you really friends with your ex? She asked. I am, Jess insisted. She tugged on her own ponytail, and Layla recognized the uncertainty of what to do with one's hands that seemed to consume so many of her dates. Bottoms, Layla thought. I even picked her up from the airport last week, Jess added, as if this were proof of friendship. Layla smiled. That's relationships shit, Layla said. Friends don't do that for each other. You two are just falling back into old patterns. That's different, Mm. doesn't count. Jess played with her own hair some more as if she were pondering this. So you don't want to be friends with any of your exes, she asked. Nope, Layla said. Again, this was a lie. If she were being honest, Layla would say she missed most of her exes. 
She missed biking with Lori, and she missed splitting burgers with Jen. But the ex she missed the most was Kara, and Kara would never be her friend. Kara had a wife, and Kara had some stranger's sperm slithering around in her because they were trying to get pregnant. Layla knew all this because, despite being blocked by Kara on Instagram, she sometimes used a burner account with the uninspired username at looking underscore at underscore things to watch Kara's stories. Jess switched the topic to bikes, a shared interest according to the dating app. <laughs> the bar was busy and damp bodies pressed closer and closer while Layla and her date swapped stories about getting hit by cars while riding. Layla embellished one of her stories, but not enough to make it a lie. She could smell Jess's body scent, lemon and salt water cut with the cheap beer smell of the bar. Jess told her own story and pointed to a scar bisecting her forearm. Layla imagined the open gash it once was, the scab after that. Now it was a lilac line, and Layla had an urge to trace it with her finger. The real reason it wasn't possible for Layla and Kara to be friends wasn't because of the wife or the anonymous sperm. It was because Layla had, on more than one occasion, lied to Kara. More accurately, she was caught lying to Kara. The worst of these lies was that Layla had been accepted to an MFA program when she had not, in fact, applied to any MFA programs. She wasn't the first partner Layla lied to, but the lies she told Kara were bigger than usual. It had something to do with the fact that they lived together, Layla assumed, but mostly it had to do with the fact that Layla had been telling small to medium lies for over 30 years by the time Kara entered her life, and mostly managed to get away with it. Therefore, it was, Layla told herself, an unfortunate but indelible fact of her existence. She was a liar, so why not be the best liar she could be? The MFA lie was, ironically, Layla's most satisfying creative outlet. She had fun making up anecdotes about class and whole personalities for non-existent professors. She easily faked being busy because between her job at a restaurant for rich people who didn't actually like food and running around town taking headshots of symmetrical-faced actor-model hybrids for extra cash, she really was busy. And at least she was still writing poems, writing and submitting poems and fielding rejection after rejection. But Kara found out, and Layla couldn't even promise her that she could be better. She could only offer to help Kara pack her things, an offer that was declined. Jess ordered another tequila soda and asked for a water, so Layla did too. If she were being honest, she would tell her date she never ordered water at a bar unless somebody else did first, and then only did so to seem like a human being. <laughs> it wasn't like Layla thought she was not a human being, but so many supposedly normal human behaviors bored her. Like, why was everyone always talking about hydration? When had swell bottles become a personality trait? Why was there someone who, every time she logged onto Twitter, reminded their followers to drink water? <laughs> Layla hated drinking water. She hated it so much that the only way she could force herself to drink a normal, human amount was to secretly add a tablespoon of wishbone Italian dressing to her <laughs> water bottle, which was strategically black so no one could see the oily swirl. The dressing spiked water was another thing she'd kept from Kara, but to be fair, she kept it from everyone. Jess was talking again, and Layla refocused. She knew she was a pro prolific liar, but she also considered herself a good listener. She liked to go on these dates, get out of her head for a bit. She was good at dates, even if she wasn't good at dating. So you self-identify as a poet, right? Jess asked. <laughs> and Layla did an actual spit take, spraying the bar with saliva and water that she was, for once, glad did not contain Italian dressing. <laughs> Sorry, Layla said, still laughing hard and choking a little. That's just a very funny way to word it. 
Her date blushed. Sorry, I don't know why I said it that way. She lifted her tequila soda as if that explained it. No, it's fine. That's pretty accurate, actually. I do self-identify as a poet. Very cool, her date said. <laughs> Layla nodded. She was not feeling very cool about identity or poetry as of lately. All those rejections. They sat in the pit of her stomach. A few days ago, she thought she'd had a breakthrough. An editor at a journal reached out to solicit work. Layla eagerly sent her a handful of poems, and the editor wrote back instantly to say that they weren't the right fit. <laughs> she mentioned another poem Layla had published a few years before, asked if she had anything else like that. Mm. In that poem, the speaker watches the motions in the empty space, or the speaker watches her immigrant grandmother's hands make samosas and mimics the motions in the empty space in front of her. Layla typed out a response asking what another poem like that meant. <laughs> Layla's poems tended to be about depression and pussy and linoleum floors and beer that tasted more like an abomination of beer, like beer sucked out of a dirty carpet. <laughs> Layla kept typing a response to the editor, asking if she meant another poem with an Indian grandmother in it, a poem with generational trauma roiling in its gut. A poem about things that were not depression and pussies, even though it seemed, Layla wrote, perfectly fine for the white dyke poets to write about depression and pussies in this very journal. She did not send the email. I'd love to read something of yours, Jess said. She pulled at the seam of her board shorts, still apparently not knowing what to do with her hands. Layla imagined pulling the board shorts off of her, balling them up, and putting them in her mouth. Maybe later, Layla said, I'll read you a poem. She was, of course, lying. Thank you. <laughs> oh, oh, what a perfect start to the, to the trash show we're going to be. You're so goddamn talented. Fuck! Oh, my God. Great. I'm going to go next. Um, she's a wonderful writer. Um I'm going to read just a little excerpt. You don't need to know anything about this. This is a part of a novel I have written called With Teeth. It's my second novel. Um, if, if you, I, uh, I guess like an elevator pitch of this book is like two lesbian moms and they're a really weird kid and they're kind of shitty moms. Um, messy gaze is the theme of this evening. Hey! <laughs> Swim practice happened every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon, directly after school. That gave Sammy just enough time to pick up her son, stuff a snack into him, and get over to the YMCA pool across town before practice began. Samson sat in the back seat, eating his crackers and cheese while Sammy navigated traffic. According to his coach, Samson was a natural swimmer with a lot of power and great form for someone his age. Sammy had no clue if that was true. She didn't know much of anything about swimming, but she did know it was the first activity her son had ever actually seemed to enjoy. And she'd pushed him for other things, too. He was smart. When he worked hard enough, he could do anything he wanted, and she told him that repeatedly, <laughs> especially on the rare occasion when he seemed even a tiny bit interested in something. So Sammy was willing to brave the chlorine-scented room, watching him swim for hours on end. The noise was deafening sometimes, all the splashing, the shrill sound of the whistle, all of it echoing off the tile walls, the kids' shouts magnified to shrieks. But none of it mattered. Samson was flourishing there. That was reason enough. Hungry? Sammy asked. Through the rearview mirror, she saw him stacking up his snacks, cheese in one pile, crackers in the other, then eating them methodically. One cheese, one cracker. 
one sip of juice, one cheese, one cracker, one sip of juice. He didn't answer, but that was fine. Sammy could see he was okay with the cheese today. Sometimes it was trial and error. He did not like cheese that was orange. He did not like cheese that had holes in it. <laughs> he did not like crackers with seeds or flavorings on them. He did not like orange juice. That was a weird one, not liking orange juice. All kids liked orange juice, didn't they? They lived in Florida, for God's <laughs> sake. But then Sammy was pickier about food than anyone she knew, so she didn't really have any business questioning her son's preferences. They pulled into the wide parking lot with 15 minutes to spare. It had rained earlier that afternoon and the sun was sparking diamond bright and the puddles still dotting the pavement. A blue jay sat washing itself in one, flicking water off its wings every few seconds. Sammy rolled down her window to smell the fresh air and watched a procession of moms pull their kids from their cars, carting them into the building. One mom Sammy had gotten friendly with, as friendly as she was used to being with other moms anyway, was Lenore, who had a little girl Samson's age. The two kids didn't really hit it off, but Samson didn't really hit it off with anybody. Sammy knew that feeling. It was hard for her to make friends, too. She missed the queer people she'd hung around with when she was single, back when she turned into a gay mom. She always thought about it that way, in capital letters, because that's what happened. You turned from a queer woman into a queer mother, and suddenly your old life and friends didn't fit the vibe of your new life. There were no gay mommy groups in Orlando, hardly any gay people in her everyday interactions besides her wife. Lenore had two kids. Serena was the younger, but the other was already in high school, a son who played basketball. Lenore was divorced. Lenore had long blonde hair she pulled back on either side with tortoiseshell barrettes. Lenore had short teeth and a dimple in one cheek and wore bright lipstick that sometimes stained those little teeth like she'd been drinking wine. Sammy thought about those teeth a lot. Too much, probably. Sammy liked the way Lenore talked. She was blunt and aggressive, and she didn't put up with the other mom's attempts at fake chit-chat. The first time they talked had been an accident. Lenore was sitting up at the top of the bleachers, waving in Sammy's direction with a big cardboard fan, and she'd automatically wave back. No, not you, Lenore yelled. My kid, she's got her fucking suit on inside out. <laughs> Normally, Sammy would have been embarrassed, waving at a woman she didn't even know, like a total idiot. But instead, she was impressed at the woman, swearing openly in front of a room full of fourth and fifth graders, and more impressively, their stuck-up mothers. Come up, Lenore told you. Not my kid. You, I mean. The new kid's mom. Sammy climbed up to sit with Lenore, who handed her what looked like a water bottle full of Coke to share. Or so she thought until she took a sip and found out it was really just a bottle of rum with a splash of soda for color. I want to be that person's friend. (laughs) (laughs) It felt illicit and kind of sexy to drink with all those kids around them and to not care. Lenore wore so much lipstick that it rubbed off around the screw top. And every time Sammy took a drink, she tasted that lipstick and she thought the woman wearing it. This woman she didn't know who kept leaning in to whisper loudly about all the other moms. There was something nice about it, something unusual, an extra moment that was hers alone. It all felt strangely important somehow and she wished the moment could have lasted. Finish your cheese, Sammy said now, watching her son methodically chew every bite. That's how he ate. Though her son's brain was still a mystery, there were things about him that she did know. He was whip-smart and a fast learner. He was graceful with cat-like reflexes. She and Monica both felt like he could have been a dancer, could have done gymnastics. He could catch a ball, skip rope for hours, clap on beat. 
He walked with confidence, more so than most children his age, regardless of gender. He was neat and tidy for the most part, (laughs) more than most boys that age she knew, or at least she thought she knew. Okay, he wasn't always neat, and he wasn't always graceful or well-behaved. He shouted sometimes, threw fits, shut down altogether. He was normal until he wasn't. Maybe that's how it was with every child. Often there were days Sammy had to remind herself that just because her son acted a certain way, withdrawn or sullen or hostile, didn't mean he'd act that way forever. It was hard to raise a kid, different from what she'd expected when she was pregnant when she'd had two bodies to feed. Mm. Could I have a bite? Sammy asked. Samson passed a sweaty square of cheese up to her in the front seat. She nibbled at it until it resembled a misshapen heart, then wiggled it at him. Check it out. That's nacho cheese, Samson. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't smile back at her, but his face softened. That was something. Let's get you suited up, she said, and they both got out of the car. Okay, I'll stop there. Um, I hope you don't, I'm gonna be super awkward and stand just because I can't read sitting down. I hope y'all don't mind. This is your event. I'm Do fucking doing want. it. There's a poet um, in the house. There's a poet in the house. Um, I'm gonna read a section that I've never read before. Yeah. Um, Love that. But I knew it was gonna be in conversation with these two faggots. <laughs> um, and it's a little spicy because with all the work I've been doing on the next viral threat, uh, which is monkeypox, which is affecting queer people. Um, where we're once again seeing so much inaction on um, simple things that could prevent queer suffering. Uh, I'm just feeling a little spicy today. (laughs) Uh, So this is from toward near the end of the book, talking about how plagues don't end, even if viruses go away, or even if effective treatments come around, their memories and the experience of plagues live on. When was the last time a plague ended? Well, in 1996, Andrew Sullivan wrote a lengthy essay called When Plagues End about his own experience of living through the 80s and 90s as a gay white man. At the beginning of the essay, he wrote about caring for friends as they left the earth and holding hands on a hospital bed, but for Sullivan, with the successful treatment of HIV via multi-drug therapy, AIDS was over. The end of the plague. Life was finally normal again. The memory was like the KS lesion he saw on a man who was refusing HIV treatment, he assumed, at the black party. Another partygoer asked that man to put on his shirt KS lesions were bad memories and not welcome at the party. For Sullivan, the HIV plague years might well be hidden too for the sake of progress. To be fair, at the beginning of his essay, Sullivan acknowledges that, quote, the vast majority of HIV positive people in the world and a significant minority in America will not have access to the expensive and effective nude treatments that have now become available. And many Americans, especially Blacks and Latinos, will still die. And yet, later in that same paragraph, Sullivan states that HIV is, quote, that HIV, quote, no longer signifies death, it only signifies illness. 
What does it mean to be ill if illness doesn't imply a closeness to death? And HIV no longer signified death then for whom? The rest of Sullivan's essay answers that question. Upper middle class white fags in New York and San Francisco. Most disturbingly, Sullivan argues that the HIV crisis finally made straight America view gay men as a man worthy of respect. Perhaps now, he says, we can all be equal. He hopes, he says that plagues and war do this to people. Go on, Andrew. He writes, (laughs) they force people to ask more fundamental questions of who they are and what they want. Out of the First World War came women's equality. Out of the Second World War came the welfare state. Out of the Holocaust came the state of Israel. Andy, women's suffrage was for white women. The welfare state post-World War II was for white people exclusively. And in the South, this was enforced by Jim Crow and in the North by federal law. And Andrew, the state of Israel itself was born out of genocidal displacement and ongoing colonial occupation. But go on. We turn it over to Andrew again. Hovering behind the politics of homosexuality in the midst of AIDS and after AIDS is the question of what will actually be purchased from the horror. What exactly, after all, did a third of a million Americans die for? If not their fundamental equality, then what? This is the limit of capitalist and consumerist thought. The suffering and loss of HIV for Sullivan gives the gay community capital with which to purchase equality. James Baldwin explains this mentality perfectly in an interview published in 1984. He says, I think white gay people feel cheated because they were born in principle into a society in which they were supposed to be safe. The anomaly of their sexuality puts them in danger unexpectedly. In 1984, at the time of this interview, HIV had just been discovered. But in and before the 1980s, there were many pre-existing ways that gay people were put to death. Baldwin continues, Their reaction, the white gays, seems to me in direct proportion to the sense of feeling cheated of the advantages which accrue to white people in a white society. And, Andy, viruses are accidents. They're genetic recipes for themselves. That HIV killed so many gay men was indeed a horror, but not a moral one not one based on the ways in which gay men lived. Ascribing meaning to horror can help us contextualize the harm done, of course, but there are costs. The horror, the plague, was nothing more than a horrible accident. And gay men in New York and in San Francisco were just one of the many global communities who suffered. But Sullivan argued that the trauma of AIDS should buy gay men equality. And so what 
does equality mean to you, Andy? What does gay freedom mean for Andrew Sullivan, homosexual man? He writes, this is truly astonishing to me. It's in print. You can look it up. Before AIDS, gay life, rightly or wrongly, was identified with the freedom from responsibility rather than its opposite. Gay liberation was most commonly understood as liberation from the constraints of traditional norms, almost a dispensation that permitted homosexuals the absence of responsibility in return for an acquiescence in second-class citizenship. This was the Faustian bargain of the pre-AIDS closets. Straits gave homosexuals a certain amount of freedom. In return, homosexuals gave away their self-respect. For what it's worth, the pre-AIDS closet included a lot of physical violence against queer people, which is not what I consider freedom. For what it's worth, not buying into the capitalist project of a nuclear family with 2.3 kids, a dog, and a picket fence on Long Island might make us both free and self-respecting. I feel free and self-respecting when my partner and I take turns fucking a top, Andy. (laughs) Sullivan describes the end of AIDS as consisting of a survivor's responsibility. Quote, it is the view of the world that comes from having confronted and defeated the most terrifying prospect imaginable and having survived. It is a view of the world's that has encompassed the darkest possibilities for the homosexual and heterosexual existence and now envisions the opposite. The chance that such categories could be set aside such that the humanity of each could inform the humanity of the other. But Andy, the humanity of heterosexuals was never much in question, was it? But Andy, maybe I found my second... But Andy, maybe I found my humanity exactly at the moment wherein I decided to identify as a homosexual precisely because it placed me in opposition to the heterosexual male who had tormented me for so long, laughing at me because I was too soft and too bookish and I cried too easily and I liked sewing and baking and cooking. I don't want to be straight. I don't care whether or not I'm HIV negative. I just don't want to die. Not yet. The HIV pandemic isn't over, and it certainly wasn't over in 1996. It might have been for Andrew Sullivan, who wanted so badly to be integrated into the world of straight white men and their power. But not all queer people at that time viewed the virus in that way. In their resistance and their activism, and their art, we find our path forward. You have to buy the book to read about all that stuff. That's as funny as the book gets. (laughs) I really want to send Andrew Sullivan a copy. You should. (laughs) You're a publisher, not you. (laughs) True. Um... So I know that you didn't really want us to ask questions about the book. I want this. So I want this to be a free book. Like these are two of my favorite writers and humans in the world. And I came to Miami to be with them. Yes. And to hear them read. And we're all queer writers. Yes. Who write 
disgustingly queer work mm-hmm. in different genres yeah. mm-hmm. and in different modalities. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to talk about the commitment to queerness, mm-hmm. both in craft and in content mm-hmm. that sort of lies is the foundation of the houses of all of the writing that we do. Yeah. yeah. That's what I want to talk about. I, Shit, no, I just I came here to, I, I came here to talk with my friends about being a fag. <laughs> um, all of my questions are gay, I promise. <laughs> but Great. some of them do touch on the book okay. a little bit. Um, I'm genuinely curious. Um, so something that I really like about your book is that it talks about care and how we care for others, but also how that is a burden. Like, it takes time. It's exhausting. It's like, it's something that we should be thinking about all the time. I'm curious what it's like to be, like, the COVID friend. Because I will say, I'm like, I this is my second time being in person with you, yeah. and I consider you my, like, COVID friend. I'm like, well, Joe we says We have had this. conversations <laughs> about this. If somebody says something to us about it, I was like, well, that's not what Joe said. <laughs> <laughs> so I would um, love to hear your, like, honest thoughts about, like, is that hard? Yeah, but I, honestly, that's, like, the biggest gift. It's like, when I decided to do a PhD in the biosciences and ended up... Dr. Joe over here. And, Dr. Joe. And, and ended up studying viruses, um, sort of backed in to end up studying viruses, um, was always interested in them, but was that's not what I went to get my PhD for. And then I took virology courses where, you know, the theme in every class is that there will be a, a respiratory viral pandemic in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. The only question is what the pathogen will be and how many people it will kill. So, you know, when this thing was kicking up, I was just like, well, this sucks and it's a nightmare and it is emotionally very difficult for me. But academically and intellectually, I've been preparing with this since I was 20 mm-hmm. and sat in a classroom and was told that this, this thing will happen, right? That was like very old news to my science friends. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to say that it's not exhausting, but one of the things that has been so important in the 2020s through now, and now especially with monkeypox, where we're seeing queer people mm-hmm. specifically, uh, you know, being the place where we're finding this virus, we are the experts. We have people in our community. Mm-hmm. We don't have to, you know, like in the HIV years, HIV positive gay men had to go to clinicians and go to scientists and learn from them. That's us now. Mm-hmm. That is us now. My best friends are epidemiologists and clinicians, and we love being there for our friends. I mean, being there for the larger community is amazing, mm-hmm. but being there for my friends is the fucking best. Yeah. And just helping people sort through it mm-hmm. and trying to both be not hyperbolic about if you go outside without a mask on, you're going to die, but also, like, here's what the situation is now. Yeah. Has been incredibly, like, I've been incredibly grateful for my training in this one moment. It's like, literally, you train for this your whole life, and then it happens. And, like, yeah, you're exhausted, but you're also grateful. And the book talks a lot about, like, in that time in 2020 when everyone was shut down, and so many people were at home alone and losing their fucking minds. I was also losing my mind, (laughs) but I felt useful. I got to feel useful. And being able to feel useful, being able to be a part of a group of activists who could call up Tony Fauci, who could actually try to get things done... Um, was an immense gift. My partner actually lost his job and was unemployed at that time. Mm-hmm. So, like, our household had, like, the unemployed. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I think to do trying to get on an unemployment side depression and my peak anxiety of like I have to save everyone's life because no one else is going to <laughs> especially the queers um, and and both of those are extremes but I was very grateful for the like literally I keep telling people like if you want to DM me about monkeypox or about Paxlovid literally today a fan of Food for Thought DM me about Paxlovid mm-hmm. and I was fitting between meetings and this and that and I said yeah here's you're in New York City you want to get Paxlovid? I know how to make that happen. Let's make that happen. Yeah. But also know that Paxlovid rebound is happening more and more. Yeah. And so if you're super mild, you know, maybe get the pills, but then don't take them unless you're starting to feel worse. Here's what's going on. It took three minutes of my life. It feels awesome. Yeah. It feels awesome. Yeah. I I really love, I mean, I, like, I think about, I know it's not the same thing. I was like, I think about like the way that you're talking about that is how I feel about librarianship. A hundred percent. And it's like, cause uh, like I'm in like a librarian also, I've not been working actively in a library right now, but it's like how I think about the idea of information, like dissemination 100%. and about how much I care about making sure people know what something is. And I was like, that time spent is like very tiring, mm. but feels so important and significant that it kind of like cuts through that other stuff. Also, um, just like bring it back to something I read that you had done, but it was like, it was a way in which you had talked about like questions and about like how so much of like your lived experience also writing this book, but just as a human and like, I don't know, like a scientist is like, figuring out the right way to ask a question and right. that's how I feel about writing. 100%. So I would love for you to talk about that because I think that that's the way I am most able to even access thinking mm. about like work ever. And for mm. me, it's not necessarily trying to find like an answer to something. Mm-hmm. It's like just trying to figure out What's not a question? better way to ask a question, but like another way to ask yeah. a question that like opens it up to like make it bigger than it starts as. I, su- I want to start with the library with the librarian piece, mm-hmm. there's an extended interview with my good friend, Stephen D. Booth. Shout out Stephen D. Booth, who um, I would just saw in Chicago. He's a librarian and archivist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to write a book about memory of HIV and archives because HIV killed so many of the people who were impacted by it mm-hmm. that one of the ways we have knowledge about HIV, of course, it didn't kill everyone. There are survivors. But there's a lot of literature and there's a lot of archives from mm-hmm. the people who were lost and the people who were dying at that time sort of viewed having an archive that would outlive them as a way to confront the death. Like, mm-hmm. my body might die, but you will not take away my papers. You will not take away my art. And there were organizations that were made to collect art, both from famous artists, but from anyone. If you were HIV positive and you made art in the 80s and 90s, um, organizations would archive that art. Yeah. And so, it, you know, archives are a way to prevent the double death, the death of the body, and then the death of the memory. Mm-hmm. When people are marginalized, they die, and that, de- that death is silenced. Uh, and so I wanted to talk to Stephen about archives, and mm-hmm. I did. And he said specifically, archives, archival work 
is spiritual work. Mm-hmm. Um, because you are allowing, you know, he tells a story about a, a black woman, and he's black, who came into the archive, who had heard her f- grandfather, who had passed, had played with Duke Ellington. And he was able to find the materials that showed that that was indeed the case and pass them on to that family. Mm-hmm. And they cried on the phone together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, the, the routine daily life of an archivist is doing a lot of work. But fundamentally what you're doing is memory making yeah. and generation connecting. And it's spiritual. And I feel that way about writing. Yeah, I also feel that way about science. Mm-hmm. Um, science is nothing but a way in which to ask questions. And a methodology through which to answer the question you have and ask a round of questions beyond that. Yeah. And I'm most interested in writing that does that on the page. Mm-hmm. That starts from a place of unknowing and then of discovery and then doesn't even land at discovery, but then goes to the next place of what questions does this, does this discovery then ask? Which is why writing is spiritual work and a life's work because every book you write asks you to write another book because you've asked questions that you couldn't answer in this book, yeah. right? Uh-huh. And and that's why we love it. And that's why it torments us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a question that's about questions a little bit I and curiosity. Um, yeah. Um, I promise I also have fun stuff. <laughs> no, <I'm not. laughs> this is all fun stuff for me. Okay, I'm just drinking, talking to my friends about this. <laughs> okay, good. Like, this is the um, best. So... Something that I noticed just being so I'm an editor at Autostraddle I've and heard of it. yes, <laughs> a queer publication and a big part of what we do is literally answer advice questions. Like that's mm. a huge part of the site. Um, and we saw like a significant uptick, like once COVID hit, and people reaching out being like, "I've just realized I'm gay. I've just realized I'm oh queer. God. I've just realized I'm trans." Right. And like, and also some people that also identified within the LGBTQ community, but also like then we're like, I've realized this new thing. Um, is the virus making us gay? No, that's not the question. Um, it's yes. <laughs> it's more so like, so something that I love in the book, um, you touch on um, the bell hooks quote of like, you know, like being queer is not who we fuck. That's not what it is, but you also, part of it, it's part of it. Of it. Cause then you also touch on like the erotic is important. Like, mm-hmm. and it's, I think so much of your book is about like narratives need to be complex and maybe even contradictory at times. Like sometimes mm-hmm. the virus is us. Sometimes the virus is not us. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, those metaphors, those like literal narratives, like we need to allow for complexity mm-hmm. and like the way that you write about queerness in the book definitely feels that way mm-hmm. to me. Um, and so I don't know, like, uh, so obviously, like, during this time of isolation, a lot of people were like, not experiencing other people. And I think the common narrative is kind of like, we figure out our own identities in relation to other people. Right, but right, what right. I saw was that people were maybe figuring out their identities, 100%. not in relation in to isolation. Other yeah, not able to date, not able to fuck like, it's right. you know, so I, I'm just curious. Well, I, have so, I have so many thoughts on this. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, like to the question of viruses are us and not us. When you're infected with HIV, I, you know, this is my training. HIV cuts you open and puts itself inside. HIV becomes you. You become it. You die when it dies. It dies when you die. COVID and monkeypox, not the case. These are acute infections. The virus comes in your body, replicates, and leaves. 
That doesn't mean it leaves you the same because your immune system has a memory of the virus, but the virus does not integrate into who you are at the cellular level. Mm -hmm. So all of these different, you know, we think about the virus and a big part of the book is there's no such thing as the virus. There are viruses that interact with our cells and our DNA and our body in different ways. And we need to be precise and particular about that, about what that means at the cellular at the metaphoric and at the political mm-hmm. level. Capitalism leads, puts us all on a treadmill where the roof over your head depends on you performing a certain amount of acts during the day. Mm-hmm. It atomizes us. It does not allow a lot of time for introspection or for the making or consumption of art. One of the big things I talk about is that every human should have the right not just to a place to live with a roof over their head, not just to healthcare, but to time in which to consume and make art if they so choose. That should be a human right. That is a part of what it means to be human. When COVID shut many, but not all of us down, right? Because who did COVID not shut down? Many people. But many of us with certain types of jobs where we could work from home, our social lives were shut down. The atomization of late capitalism in a way was reified and increased because we were all in our homes by ourselves. And in other ways, the routines of daily life were broken. And the first novel that I wrote that is never going to be published was about Hurricane Sandy in New York. And the three-week period of time where essentially there was no work, there was no there was no play, there was nothing you couldn't get on the subway, there was like people were freezing in their apartments, it was dark. Like, what happens when the routines of capitalism break and we have to sit with ourselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no shit people discovered things. <laughs> <laughs> because you're sitting there at your home and you're like, who am I? Yeah. Who am I? Yeah. Do I like the people I live with? Mm-hmm. Do I like my friends? Do I trust them? Mm-hmm. You know, my roommate and I had different ideas of what COVID safety meant. Mm-hmm. I also was like, this shit is going to hit us hard and it's going to be with us for more than a year. And he was like, ha, 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 you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> um, so it asked questions of us. Mm-hmm. And I'm very interested in ruptures in routine. I wish ruptures in routine didn't only come in capitalism because of math de- mass death. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. We only rupture our routine when the capital production of that routine become secondary to mass death. This is a real light. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. LOLs. The readings were real funny. But. Uh, I remember being like uh, with Kayla and thinking, I mean, I'm from Orlando. I remember thinking like COVID became a real thing to me when I realized that Disney World had shut down. But bitch. I was like, they don't shut down for a hurricane. Do you want to know how much money they're losing? I was like, this is, I was, it was so shocking to me, to my core as a person who has like lived their life. Of Central Florida, as a person of Central Florida experience. As a person of Central Florida experience. (laughs) I was like, I was like, this is like a thing to me where I was like, oh, and I was like, this is a, and I was like, it's so much was based on like the specific kind of capital that runs a lot of like specifically Central Florida, like theme park and um, hospitality. And people, tourism and coming in and consumer is like such a life, quote unquote, blood yeah. of of how Central Florida functions. And I remember being like, I don't know what this means for people um, and, and what that looks like to people who are like, 
there's so many people who um, live in Central Florida because they are artists. Oh, wow. Uh, right. Dancers, actors, singers. True. Who right. have come to work at the theme parks and live there. Some of them from out of the country um, yeah. that work there to work at the parks. And, like, what that looks like for them being in this kind of space. Um, so I, I was I'm very interested in that question about, like, yeah, like how do you interrogate the self when it's like, well, it's just you and you and me, bitch. It is <laughs> it's it's, just us. Well, and it's, and for people who live alone, it's just me and me. Yeah. It is just me and me. And what yeah. do we do? And you know, my partner who was laid off, um, it was on hiring freeze. Mm-hmm. My my so I'm a depressive person. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> I'm very sad all the time. My partner is very like pretty chill and like not sad all the time. He likes himself, which is weird to me. I don't understand it. Uh, he, he loves being alone, which I also do, but he does it in a different way. But like when he lost his ability to work and had no daily routine and then lost his social life at the same time. Uh, yeah. I don't think that was a time of self-discovery for him. It was a time of deep pain. Yeah. And, you know, I, a lot of people have these times of self-discovery. My friend, I'll just use his real name here. He's in the book. I think his name is Anthony in the book. His real name is Jesse. He was, he, uh, he was, he's still, he's still alive. <laughs> he was an ICU nurse, an ICU step-down nurse at the beginning of the crisis. Uh, he worked at New York Presbyterian. Uh, New York had, we were digging mass graves. The city was shut down. There were sirens everywhere. Um, you, if you had to go to the hospital for something like a burst appendix, you might die. It was a very bad time. And my best friend, who I'd been friends with for 15 plus years, was converted in 48 hours from, from an ICU step-down nurse to a COVID ICU nurse. That is, do you know, uh, training to become an ICU nurse usually takes six months. He had 48 hours and people were dying and he was create, he was giving palliative care and people could not get inside even to get palliative care. And he called me up one day and was uh, on the train sobbing, just saying, I, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Um, And one thing that I argue very strongly in this book is that it sucks to remember that. It is unpleasant to remember my best friend in the world. Also, my mom was shipping him masks from rural Washington, and he was baking them in the oven because there was no PPE day to day. There was a mass grave on Hart Island in New York City. Helicopters were everywhere. There were sirens. You could not leave the house. I could not get my clothes washed. You could not order takeout. That fucking happened. And it lasted for some time. It lasted for maybe six weeks. And as much as we want to move on, one thing that the HIV AIDS crisis teaches us is that if you move on from trauma at that level without looking at it and feeling the pain and incorporating it into who you are personally and collectively, you do that at your own detriment. That pain is coming for you. Uh, And I, 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 I didn't and I still don't see people both reckoning with that moment and then with the reality that the, that pandemic is still here and our small acts of care that we do right now matter as much as they did then. And that there's this longing for normalcy that is so human 
And I understand so profoundly, but that we do at the literal human costs of the fact that people are still dying and that we do it to our own detriment, to our spirit's detriment, because we're not sitting and looking at the pain and trauma that happened to us. And if you don't do that, it lives with you and it's coming for you. I don't know when it's going to come for us all at different times, but it is coming for each and every one of us. Not to be super depressing, but we have an opportunity. The opportunity is to intervene. Mm -hmm. The opportunity is to remember Mm -hmm. like queerness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. is not a nice way to grow up. At least for us was not pleasant. I didn't even know I was gay. I just like baking and the kids punched me in the fucking back of the head. It's not nice, but it's an opportunity to live life in another way. And it's the greatest gift of my life. Not saying COVID or HIV is the greatest gift of my life, but it happened. We so want to look away from reality to not feel pain. I feel like both of your writing is about that. Bitch, there's pain and joy and humor. Yeah. And you have to accept all of it. Otherwise, you live a very small life. Yeah. I... <laughs> oh, my God. Shit. I mean, you are correct. You are correct. And pleasure. And gay sex. Yes. Which is very pleasurable. I mean, all that stuff kind of... All that stuff kind of lives... Yes. That All that stuff lives together. I mean, I think to, like, try to, like, separate one out from the rest of them is not an accurate portrayal of like the actual condition of what it is like to like move through life to be a literal human to be a literal human mm-hmm. is like the messiness and hurt and ache and like impulse and like love and like nastiness sometimes and i don't know it's i mean it's a lot of things but yeah to like look away from the parts that make you uncomfortable is to like not be whole which i argue is is the condition that is cis straight whiteness. Sure. You live your whole life. Someone, your husband dies. You go to the funeral. Friends bring you food. Everyone leaves your house. You're back to work as soon as you can. Mm-hmm. You, the, the, the emotional register of the normative American life is this big. Mm-hmm. And all of our lives will include illness and grief. The first time I felt real grief and I felt like I couldn't go to work and I felt it in my body. I was like, no one told me about this. And if I was a kid and someone told me about that, that would have sucked, but it would be much better in the long run because when it happens as an adult and you feel grief, you're like, Oh, this is that. But I was like, what is this? Mm -hmm. What is this? And that's not a nice way to move through the world. Also a way in which it's like, you're supposed to, not share that with other people. Hundred percent. You're dramatic if you share it. Yeah, and it's like, oh, you're gonna like put some of that on another person, and it's going to be a way in which they have to like hold a burden, right? Because it feels like a burden to have grief. Right. Um, it is a burden. Yeah. It's horrible. It yeah. should be a burden. That it, is the thing. It, yeah. It, that it like literally is. Yeah. But it's we all will feel that at some point. Not all the time. And the grief doesn't last forever. I also would say that like grief and like yeah like we were saying like grief and like humor and like like all kinds of things sit together at the same time like those things don't come they're not disparate kinds of things like they sit simultaneously i have a new tattoo it's from an (laughs) ann carson essay oh my goodness Um, it's from the essay on threat which is available on youtube you know it i think um the essay is essentially about someone who likes to control their whole life 
and understand everything scientifically. And then a death happens and they're forced to deal with grief. And what they say is grief is big. Grief is small. Grief is forever. Grief is in the moment. Mm -hmm. It comes in waves. And usually when it comes, it's paired with something deeply humorous, which we're not willing to even admit to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And she says, we want to believe that other creatures grieve the same way we do, but we have no evidence of that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a singular feeling. Uh, I think of the, what's it? I never know how to pronounce his last name. Max Revito, the poet who died of cancer very young. Mm -hmm. And he published a last interview where he said, there's nothing funnier than death. I'm dying of cancer. And I look like a cartoon. I'm shitting violently and I'm vomiting at the same time. My head is between my legs and there's liquid coming out of every hole that I have. And it is like, that is a child's cartoon. And, and he said, I had to laugh. I had to laugh. How can you not laugh being in this position as your body d- disintegrates? But we're not meant to acknowledge the humanness of that. And we all end up in that place. Mm-hmm. My book is a lot about illness and viruses as facts of life. We want to keep the virus out there and us in here. Illness out there and wellness in here. But the only fact we all have is that we all have viruses in us already, yeah. we'll get ill, then well again, and then ill again and well again. Mm-hmm. And what's waiting for us all is f- fundamentally death. Yeah. And the American psyche cannot acknowledge that reality. And when you live with a psyche divorced from reality, you will only harm yourself and others. Mm. It's like perforation of like the perfect human envelope. And, and you have to be perfect at all times. Yeah. Um, I want to hear about, before we end, yes. your next Wait, question. I have zombie movie questions. Let's, let's do zombie Real movie, fast. Zombie They're movie like questions. <laughs> rapid fire. <laughs> I love... Like you We're going to end on a different... You wrote book, a book yes. about viruses. And you do, yes. you touch on zombie narratives I, I in the book. Because how can you not? How can mm-hmm. you not? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have some rapid Specifically, fire questions. Specifically, I, I get very mad at Will Smith. For being a virologist. Okay, that's my first question. And actually, having six pack abs. Oh, how, dare oh, you? how dare you, Will Smith? You're question. setting us all up for failure. <laughs> so yeah, you say in your book that I Am Legend is a bad movie. Um, would you like to issue a retraction? <laughs> as much as I love jump scares, and as much as as much as I love, it's airborne. It's a good movie. And helicopter explosions. <laughs> Um, as much as I love dogs, as you all know. Yes. yes. That uh, is a pretty brutal dog scene. One of the worst. So that is a time when that bad movie is good. So yeah. even I'm querying the fact that bad movies can have good moments in them. Hey, <laughs> you're emotionally it. attached to the dog. <laughs> There's zombie dogs. It's a whole moment. No, that's a really bad movie. <laughs> it's right. so bad. Um, we can agree to disagree. Um, what is your favorite zombie movie? You know, I don't have one okay so that was actually my next question it's like do you hate zombie movies i tend to hate zombie movies and movies about viruses what do they get wrong the most often or the most extreme so (laughs) contagion actually took um a lot love contagion (laughs) well gwyneth paltrow she should die in the first five minutes of every movie (laughs) would you like to issue a retraction (laughs) 
because my whole ass bisexual has been in love with Gwyneth Paltrow since Emma and her cheekbones, and I still a want her bisexual. to top. <laughs> I, I'm not. I do not want anything to do with goop. But if she put on a crystal egg dildo and and top and topped me into okay. oblivion in, until my body is ground beef and made into a Jacques Pepin style burger, that is how I want to go. This is the most incredible way. Contagion took very, um, very strong pains to be scientifically accurate, and it is actually very, very good. It's a fine movie. I don't know. I, uh, I loved Outbreak. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in the in the in the nineties, again, very scientifically ina- inaccurate, and also my current brain would be like, "There's a lot of racism happening in this mm-hmm. that I don't love." Uh, my nineteen ninety five brain was like, "Oh." Army scientists are so badass with their suits and their yellow, and it's airborne, and there's a spike change. And anyway, um, they're all bad. Okay. <laughs> um, actually, the, 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 the less serious they are, the better I can allow them okay. to be. I love NCIS, which they're like, I'm going to do a centrifuge, and then they push a button, and it's done. And like, I work with centrifuges every day, and I'm just like, but the stakes are so low. Who fucking cares? NCIS is bad. <laughs> Um, if a zombie movie were to be made about our current moment and you were the star virologist in it, who would play you? Um, it would be Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> and the lesions would all be internal a- anal lesions. <laughs> sure. yeah. And I would go around probing holes. <laughs> Wow, which is which is you're so ready for that. Well, because I mean, that's literally what's happening right now with monkeypox. It's like literally chickpea-sized lesions inside of friends' buttholes. So, (laughs) yeah. Well, on Uh, that note, I I will say around zombie movies, the thing that I talk about in the book that I find fascinating is that the book I Am Legend Mm -hmm. was in the book I Am Legend. The pathogen was a bacterium. And then antibiotics were invented. And so because antibiotics treat bacteria, the virus has to stand in for the pathogen we don't understand. So there's a metaphorical power to the virus that is the thing that can tell you that is unknowable to science. Mm -hmm. And it just shows you how those things shift over time and with additional biomedical infrastructure. That when antibiotics come around, the thing that was unknowable, which is, oh, syphilis, Literally renders your brain crazy, mm-hmm. right? right? It eats away at different parts of your brain. Different people go crazy in different ways. Syphilis was the zombie-making thing. Then we figure out how to treat syphilis, and it becomes rabies. It becomes the virus, right? Um, viruses are malleable, malleable in this way because there's so many of them, and they become m- more metaphorically powerful than we should allow them to be. Mm-hmm. That's my mic drop on the book. Um, all of that is in the book too. I will say I am not a science person and all of these things are explained in there, like in a way that feels very accessible. What are, what queer books are are coming from you two? One to one. I want to know the, the, what are you writing now that you're like, this is the faggot shit that is. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I think Kayla, I would be interested to hear. Kayla is writing a lot of. Very cool I, stuff. I mean, I live know. with her, so it's like I get to hear her stuff all the time. Yeah. I So I have Helen House coming out in October, and it is like a gay ghost story. Mm. And a lot of what I'm writing Is right the ghost now, a top or a bottom? 
Oh, that goes. Uh, that goes is like a child demon. Oh. So neither. <laughs> it's like, so we need to think about this. No, more. but but like a a, a torturer. Um, uh, so a top who, <laughs> who tortures people in their dreams. Um, but then so. I'm also working um, on another project right now. That's like. A girl, or, or she's an adult woman now, but her, like, middle school best friend turned, like, kind of bully ex-best friend who yeah. died when they were in middle school comes back to haunt her. Um, is she a top? <laughs> she's a top. Fuck yeah, she <laughs> For is. For sure. <laughs> For sure. Um, uh, but yeah, so just for a lot of, like, gay ghost stories. I don't know what that's about, but... <laughs> For research, for your research, Hostimus has you been can, haunted by a gay. Exactly. You can you can download these videos. Uh, they they are a tax write off for you. There's a porn series called Booty Bandit. Does anyone know of this? Where yeah. there's a bottom in bed and he's like super horny, and a ghost comes and fucks him, and then after the bottom comes, the ghost like disappears again. Very hot. That <laughs> sounds like exactly what I'm trying. I love to how you use this as a tax right off. Amazing. Booty bandit. Booty bandit. All right. <laughs> well, I love that. <laughs> oh my god. I don't know. I don't. I think this is a really interesting question because I've been like trying to like reanalyze like what I think about right now and what I'm trying to write about, and like maybe one of the things is that. Um, I don't know. Um, it's that. like trying to um, maybe consider the ways in which, uh, I mean, as a top. Uh, okay. Advertise much. <laughs> <laughs> she read the room and she said, this is 90% bottoms and I'm going to just put my services out there. <laughs> I don't know. I was just like thinking a lot about like the ways in which we perform kinds of queerness um and like the expectation of like a kind of way to behave and uh like if you're this kind of person that wants to like have this kind of sex and be this kind of person then you need to be like perceived in a kind uh-huh. of way and i'm interested in thinking about that right now maybe in like the fiction i'm thinking about that sounds amazing that's why i snort viagra before every time i, have to I just want to be able to pee <laughs> as a person who is going to get the job done. (laughs) This was delightful. We are trash humans. This episode of Food for Thought was made possible by the generous, unequivocal support of Rosé and our new home at Stitcher. Our producer is the hardest of hard cheeses, the most Reggiano of all of the Parmigianos, Alexandra De Palma. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, or I never cry again and will die from the tears welled up inside of my brain. You can find us all on Instagram at Gay Sluts Who Read, and on Facebook and Twitter at Food for Thought Pod. You can find us all individually. Y'all honestly know how to do that by now. And as always, send your questions, thoughts, spelled how, concerns, and dick pics to thoughts at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. As always, that's food, the number four, And thought spelled how? Spell it with me, babies. T-H-O-T. See you next week.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.